This episode of the While She Naps podcast is sponsored by Search Press North America, best-selling books for sewing, quilting, knitting, fine art, and many other crafts. Award-winning titles include the A to Z Embroidery Books and the Half Yard Sewing Series. Whether you're a beginner or an expert looking for new inspiration, Search Press delivers consistent step-by-step instruction books for all crafters. You can find Search Press books in all major craft stores, as well as specialist retailers around the world. Find out more at searchpressusa.com. Thank you so much, Search Press. And now, here's the show. Welcome to episode 130 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we are talking about going from being a blogger to being an author and a teacher with my guest, Anne Wheel. And I am very lucky to have Anne here visiting me today in my studio in Wellesley while well, she is in the Boston area as part of her book tour for her brand new book, Weaving Within Reach, which is beautiful. And Anne is the author and creator of the blog Flax and Twine and a designer of patterns and projects that have been published by Martha Stewart, Design Sponge, Elle Decor, Real Simple, and The Huffington Post. The author of Weaving Within Reach and Knitting Without Needles and teaches classes nationwide at art retreats. She's going to be teaching at Squam while she's here in the Boston area and uh, local yarn stores. And she's also going to be teaching at Gather Here um, and online at creativebug.com and craftsy.com. She lives in Denver, Colorado with her family. And we'll welcome... Thank you, Abby. It's so good to be here. Yeah, it's great to have you. And I absolutely love having people come and visit me in the studio and be able to record live, which is the best. Yeah, it's awesome. And I'm just so glad to finally meet you face to face. Yeah. Because we've known of each other for a very long time. Right. We've been online friends for many, many years. So that's also a real treat to be able to actually meet in person. So, all right. So you grew up in uh, Minneapolis. I did. And um, lived there when you were a kid. And it sounds like you were a pretty crafty kid and like to make things, learn to knit and crochet when you were pretty young and um, and cross-stitch too. Mm-hmm. Um, and so can you tell us a little bit sort of about those early years and your making life when you were young? Yeah, well, I just like, I always loved to craft, always loved to make things. And so from a very early age, I did learn to knit and crochet But then I got to this phase where I I said, you know, anything my mom does, I don't want to do. I don't know if you know any kids like that. (laughs) But anyway, I um, so then I started uh, cross stitching because nobody did that. And I was a mad cross stitcher. And you if you knew me, you would get a little ornament or a little, um, you know, paperweight or a pillow or a little embroidery hoop with a cute, uh, you know, quote on it and all that stuff. So I love doing that or, or those, remember those barrettes we used to weave? Yes. I loved making those and selling those and doing all that stuff. And uh, it was just so much fun. And the other thing I did when I was little, and I think that this is a big part of what I get out of my professional life now, 
is I was a mad magazine clipper. So I would get all these photography magazines and craft magazines, like living magazines, and would just spend hours cutting out photos, putting them in. I had books upon books upon books of these collaged images, um, photographs and stuff like that. So I feel like I was pinning when I was, you know, a babe. And were you actually making collages or were you just like putting them in like Photo I would put them in, it wasn't really collages, so it was photo albums, but I would put them in color families so okay. that they would like look pretty together. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. So. Okay. <laughs> and were they photos of particular subjects? Or no, just... there was everything. Uh-huh. So I would be, I would like had this book that was all black and white photography. Uh-huh. And then I had a book that was, um, you know, more colorful things. And, um, and sometimes it would be a lot of flowers, a lot of, um, landscapes, um, portraits, just, they yeah. really ran the gamut. Yeah. You were like Pinterest. Yeah. 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 What? I, yeah totally. Like, why didn't I think of that? All right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Think about that. Okay. So, so you were really visual minded clearly and handy, like really enjoyed using your hands. Yeah. But I also get the feeling that you were a really high achiever. Like you're somebody who, um, enjoys, achievements and doing well in school, just very achievement oriented. <laughs> I get that feeling about you both. And and that comes out later. Um, we'll see that like sort of play out as time yeah. goes by. Um, but you must have done very well in school because um, you went to a really good college. You went to Yale. Um, and so um, did making and that kind of thing sort of not, not really play into your career plans and your sort of studies? Yeah, it honestly did not at all. And I wish that someone had said to me then, you're so creative, you're so visual, make sure you continue doing this and making this a part of your life. But it just kind of fell by the wayside. I got, I am a big achiever and I always want to work hard and do well. And at that time, that was doing well in my classes and uh, participating in school and, and doing all that stuff. So I basically, when I hit high school, I stopped making altogether. I did, you know, had a couple art classes, but it just really wasn't a focus. And, um, so it was all academic at that point and sports and stuff like that. And, and that continued through college and through my early professional years also, um, where it just wasn't a part of my life. And I really started to miss it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And it's too bad. And I think that, you know, I'm also a very achievement oriented person and my parents definitely told me like, you know, that's all well and good that you like making things, but that is definitely not going to be part of your career or your, you know, what you study in school because you need to get a real education kind of thing. Exactly. I mean, and it wasn't, it was just it wasn't even discussed. Yeah. Like it was assumed. Assumed. That, you know, not an option. Yeah. No, art art or something creative, that's not an option. Yeah. And I do yeah. feel lucky that we do live in a time when it can become something that is an option and that can be a career. And I feel like the internet really opened that up for people. Yeah, I agree. And if it weren't for the internet and how the world kind of proceeded and blogs and all that, I wouldn't, I would not be where I am today yeah. without it. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Who could have yeah. predicted that though? Yeah. You, you, you don't, know. Yeah. You really don't. And know. I do also feel lucky that I did get that great education because I have those tools I to know. be able to do whatever I want. So yeah. in some way they were right. Yes. Um, well, and the the path that I led, I'll never regret it because one, I met a ton of amazing people. Like you said, I'm achievement oriented and I love working hard at whatever it is I do. 
and I get a lot of satisfaction and a lot of happiness out of just being a, a hard worker and achieving um, things that are on a certain path that I'm on. So, and it could be in a lot of different areas. So, so there, you know, I don't regret what I did. And it also financially made it so I could take more chances and, and stuff like right, that. Right, exactly. Which I don't think, uh, you know, sometimes I think like, what would my alternate path have been? What I've gone into, you know, what I've gone into art, what I have been in publishing, what I have done, you know, magazine oriented stuff, something more creative and art director. I don't know. And, but like that path would have been very different than, you know, where I am now. Right. So what ended up happening though, is that you worked on wall street. So you were in New York Mm -hmm. and you were, um, you were working on wall street in commercial real estate, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and, and that, so describe that lifestyle a little bit for people who have no idea what that's really like and also sort of financially what that what, what that was looking like. I mean, it, it gave you, as you said, like financial security because you had like the skills and the ability to be a high earner. Yeah. So, I mean, I it seemed like a lot of money when I went there right from college, but you start out kind of uh, a crazy kind of slave to the business, honestly, you, um, so I moved to New York right from college and I was in what was called the analyst program, but these programs, you know, you're basically working a hundred hour weeks, you know, 80 to 100 hour weeks. You're in the bank all the time. You're staying up till two, three in the morning. You're you're working on Saturday, working on Sunday. I pulled many all nighters. I mean, it is insane. That's brutal. Um, and it's rough. And so for two years, I really, you know, plowed away at that. And so I had this little break. And so I was always like a little bit on a different path because what I really wanted to do when I left college was lead backpacking trips. And uh, so I had told my, I was talking to my dad and I had had this offer from the bank. He's like, why don't you go do the banking thing first and then go lead backpacking trips? So I, that's what I did actually after my two years, first two years at the bank is I took a summer and went and led backpacking trips in Wyoming. And that was an amazing experience. I got a job offer from a, a camp in Jackson Hole. And, you know, that was, again, another path that I could have taken. Right. And um, um, but my the the bankers that I was working with, they kind of seduced me back to New York, you know, come finish what you started and like, we really need you. And, you know, they make it seem like, you know, uh, you know, it was important. It felt important to like come back and do what I was doing. So I went back and worked another four years, four or five years there. Um, And I shifted groups and did some, some different roles. And, um, but I always knew that something wasn't quite right. I was very good at what I did. um, But I, wasn't happy per se. And I kind of feel like uh, the way I think and the way I work, I could do a lot of different things. And that just wasn't satisfying. You know, I could see people around me getting like super excited about the deal and what they were putting together. And like, they wanted to crunch the numbers and they wanted to go meet with these people. They wanted to They had like a passion and a fire. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, how could you possibly want to do that? Like my satisfaction literally came from like, oh, my presentation is good. And I did what they wanted. And my model is working and the numbers work out. And I like numbers a lot. So that part, you know, could be fun, but I didn't, I didn't like have like real passion for the deal. Yeah. And you, I just feel like you kind of need that. 
um, to really love what you're doing in that yes. business. And people definitely had that. Yeah, you can see it in other people. Yes. And um, and I think that does give you a clue. I mean, I know when I was teaching middle school, um, I worked with a person on my team who was re- getting ready to retire. And I remember looking at him and he loved, the kids absolutely loved him. Yeah. And he loved the kids. And he had been, you know, he was getting ready to retire. This is his whole entire career. Right. And I remember looking at him and just being like, oh my God. That's your whole career. Like what? I, and I just, I just like, I can't, I could never do this my whole career. Right. Like, right. I just, I mean, I liked it. I was good at it. You know, yeah, and totally. I was totally capable yeah. of doing it, but yeah. it just was not, you know, and when I had a child, I was like, this is my way out, you know? Yeah. Like, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, it was funny. I remember being in San Antonio in a small conference room, like harsh fluorescent lights, we were there for, you know, four or five hours studying, like, what market rates were in the San Antonio business, you know, office market. And I'm like, why am I here? Why am I here? There, there's nothing about this that interests me. Right. And that really kind of, like, flipped the switch. And then my husband and I said, you know, let's let's get out of New York. So let's you guys made a really radical move. And mm-hmm. I think it's a brave move. It's one that a lot of people dream of making, but some people just sort of never do. Um, partially because it's really risky financially and, you know, it's hard to do, but you both quit your jobs mm-hmm. or he sort of did it first maybe, but anyway, and you moved, mm-hmm. you moved for, out of New York, got away from the grind, yes. um, and moved to Colorado, moved mm-hmm. to Boulder and just said, you're going to figure it out. Yep. And then I promptly got back into real estate. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Which, um, you know... I did want to go figure it out, figure out what I wanted to do. And I actually started my master's in landscape architecture and was starting to realize, like, remember how much I love creativity, um, creativity, expressing ideas through art. You know, I was really passionate. And then I kind of got looped back in. It's very seductive when people call you. We need you. They've got a lot of money on the table to pay you. And uh, so I ended up leaving my master's and working again in real estate. Um for for the bank and um and then you had three kids and then boom 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 I and had three, three years kids in three years yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that kind of put an end to everything in terms of the the landscape architecture and I um I then just started consulting for the bank and that was great honestly like when my kids were really young I could work a few out you know I could work 10 hours 20 hours 30 hours and be with them and uh it, my hours were really variable But that is also when I started to feel like I, you know, and the making, when I finally moved to Boulder, the making, and I was getting into landscape architecture, the making started to sneak back into my life because that creative fire was really like lit again. And I started knitting a ton. Um, And I think having kids can help you do that too. Yeah. Whether it's because you're nesting and like want to make things for them. Yeah. And they're here and you want to make things with them. And it just helps a little bit. I think it does too. I think it does too. So it started out with knitting. And then, um, you know, a few years into, you know, when my kids were probably like five, six, seven, I started um, writing the blog. And that a friend suggested that to you. Yeah, I had a friend suggest that to me because I I really wanted to do something creative and um, kind of my initial idea fell through. And she was like, just start writing about it. Just start creating and something will become clear it'll be become more clear to you and so I started flax and twine in 2010 with this intention like I really want to find my creative voice 
um, because I feel like it can get buried with all this, like, we need to be doing this. And, you, you know, you start to lose faith that you that that's in you, I think. Um, what I did know is that I loved making with my hands. And so what I wanted to kind of learn and explore was, well, what do these hands want to make? And how did you choose the name Flax and Twine? Oh, do you know, we were, I so this initial creative um, venture that I um, had been on, we were trying to come up with names for it. And um, and so I had been looking for names for, for this initial thing that I was involved in. And uh, I was hunting around on the internet, thinking about things. And I, I don't know, I was exploring flax, you know, the fact that it could be linen or yarn or, you know, so many different things. It has so many great properties. And I don't know, I just pieced it together. And I thought that word was really cool. And then the idea of twine and things, twine being like the, you know, winding of things together, you know, it's two strands wound together. And so the whole thing just kind of fell into place. And I had said, well, why don't we call this creative venture Flax and Twine? And I was like, I really like that. So then when um, that friend and I didn't didn't move forward on our venture together, I... I oh, took, I see. So you guys were going to do something together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Okay. And so then I took the name and made it into, and your made own blog. It into my own. Blog. I see. Okay. Yeah. So that's how it worked. Yeah. Okay. So it was really neat. And um, and I in the beginning years I just literally wanted to be making things and putting them out on the blog. Yeah, and, and that's what my blog was in the beginning yeah. as well. I was like, oh, I made origami. Here you go. Yeah. Like whatever. I I decorated cupcakes. That yeah. look look at the cupcakes. Yeah. I, I planted this in my garden. Here yeah. it is. Like anything. Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly what it was. Yeah. You know, we were I was like cutting paper, I was making I was covering boxes and fabric, I was sewing things, I was knitting things. And actually, um, it ended up being more of a craft oriented blog in the beginning, um, mainly because my kids, a lot of the projects were, you know, originated by things yeah. my kids were doing. And that's how I started doing the finger knitting and, um, and kind of got into that aspect, which is what my first book is on. My first right. book is Knitting Without Needles. And so it was all this idea of making beautiful things with finger knitting and art. And knitting. so they, you were knitting and they wanted in on like, hey, can I, you know, because kids will come over and be like, your attention is on the knitting yes. and they want it on them. Yes. That so, is, right. That is exactly right. What so happened. they start pulling on it and you're like, La! that's my project. And so you put, you know, the yarn on their fingers. Yeah. And what was crazy was I was like, let me show you this. And I picked up the yarn and I started finger knitting. And I don't honestly don't remember ever learning how to do that. But it started, I just like was brain, you know, just from when you were a kid. Yeah. From when I was we a kid. Were I, like at camp and finger. Yeah, yeah. I clearly had done it before. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, I totally remember this. And I just fell in love with it again. But then if you, you know, when I was looking out on on the internet for like projects, you know, because it's this long skinny strand of four stitches, basically like, what do you do with this? And so that was what was the initial concept for my first book, because what I've come to realize is that my biggest strength in making and and creativity, and I think this is true for a lot of creative people, but is our, is the idea generation. It's like, okay, well I could do this with it, or I could do this with this, or if you could attach it, you could make a wider fabric or if you could, you know? And so I remember one night being with my daughter who was, you know, like seven or eight at the time. And we just like, 
brainstormed and sketched like pages of ideas of what you could do with finger knitting. And that's, that's when I was like, oh, this would be a really cool book concept. And that's kind of how right. that whole thing got rolling. Right. So you had this idea for a book about finger knitting. Mm -hmm. And at that time, you know, when you Googled finger knitting projects, not a lot of stuff came no. up because as you said, finger knitting is basically like a tube before stitches or yep. like, yeah. And, it, and, you know, when you start doing it, you quickly end up with like, yards and yards of it and then you're like I want to make a project and then you're like what do I do with this exactly and so you start looking around but then there's not really anything to do with it and yeah. so you came up with all these ideas of what to do with it and you actually invented techniques for making it a wider fabric yes um, and these are actually new techniques that nobody had invented before yeah where you're attaching that one length to a second link. So basically kind of like a second row. Yes. So basically it becomes, you're making this attached, these attached rows of four stitches. And so in doing that, you can make a bigger fabric or a, so it kind of follows a little bit of cro kind of crochet style where you're kind of going back and picking up the stitches that you just made. Right. And um, so you can do circular. So like in that first book, you can find like a, you know, pla a planter that goes up and up and up. And or you can do it back and forth kind of like a snake. So there's a blanket that is made with that wider fabric. Or you can attach them in length. So you have like a eight inch wide scarf made of finger knit strands. And that is so satisfying for anyone who's ever finger knit say, Finally, I can actually do something useful with yeah. this stuff. And if you pick a really sophisticated, you know, bulky yarn, for example, um, I think this is another one of your strengths is that you pick a really beautiful, neutral, sophisticated yarn that an adult w woman or guy would love or, you know, for their yeah. home or to wear. Yep. Um, and so you're not starting with something cheap or, you know, acrylic or like something a little kid would like necessarily, but actually something that an adult would like. And then doing this technique and the result is something you would actually really want and is modern and, you know, blown up in a big scale or whatever. Yeah. And that you really, you really nailed it because that, that was really my goal. I wanted it to be appeal to adults and finger knitting, you know, you think, oh, you're just, it's a kid's thing. You're just making these things, but it's very satisfying, honestly, to be making something just with your hands and yarn. I want to take a minute now to talk with our sponsor, Search Press North America. This is Anne Woodcock from Search Press North America. This is Robert Woodcock from Search Press North America. And what is Search Press North America? Search Press North America is the U.S. and Canada branch of Search Press, which is a leading art and craft publisher in the United Kingdom. We publish everything from fine art, technique books, through knitting, sewing, crochet, weaving, basket weaving, embroidery, uh, you name it, we pretty much cover all kinds of crafts. The method and the process for our books is always to have very detailed step-by-step -step works to allow you to follow along and learn at your own pace, um, really from expert guidance from people who are running courses 
and who are traveling the world and showing their craft and their and their art skills. This year, particularly in the sewing and uh, sewing area, we have uh, two great books coming that are just out now called the Build a Bag series that are from the great author Debbie Shore. For her Build a Bag series, uh, she uses a template, a plastic template that is included in the books and shows you how to use that template to make a range of really fun and really gorgeous tote bags and clutch bags and all-purpose bags. So these books have been very, very popular, and Debbie is on the Create and Craft television show, and she also has her own YouTube channel where she talks about how to use sewing to create really beautiful masterpieces. Um, Search Press has some very good quilting books, particularly under under the authorship of Carolyn Forster, who is a very, very popular quilter and regularly is teaching courses at Quilt Market and lots of other quilting shows around the U.S. and Canada. Her work is particularly known for very strong design and very good use of interesting fabrics and in combinations that are somewhat unusual. She's probably our leading uh, author in quilting. In particular, the sewing crew among you may be interested in the A to Z series, particularly the A to Z of embroidery stitches, which is one of our really top best-selling titles. We have a discount code that is available, and it will be for all listeners for the While She Naps podcasts, and they can Choose any search press book and receive that discount, uh, the 20% discount and free shipping for any of our titles purchased through the Search Press North America website. Um, the code is WSN102018. That coupon code can be used at www.searchpressusa.com. Thank you so much, Search Press North America. And now back to my conversation with Anne. And that also, so that whole notion led to uh, also the arm knitting, um, which then I, that it started out as a finger knitting book, but that concept really started to like take hold on me as dovetailing with the finger knitting nicely um, in that really all you need is your hands or your fingers and yarn. And arm knitting at that time, same deal. Basically, there was no information out there. You looked for it and saw... Well, how did you first even hear about it? So the first thing was that somebody, and I don't know who this was, but thank you out there if you wrote this comment. But but basically, I got a comment on the blog. Have you ever heard of arm knitting? This was on my finger knitting, one of my finger knitting and posts. Like how awesome are blog communities that we introduce one another to these other things? Yes. Like that's the, I mean, it's awesome. It is. Yeah. It is incredible. And uh and I was like, arm knitting, I've never heard of that. So I searched YouTube, I searched the internet, and literally there was nothing. It's hard to imagine a time when there was nothing about arm I know, knitting right? because the craze is the craze. Yeah. But there was, maybe four or five years ago, there was that dearth. I mean, it was nothing. Yeah, yeah. Literally, there was nothing. And, and I did find one YouTube um, hit, and it was this artist in, um, I think, Germany. And he, he actually was doing a very cool thing. It was almost performance art. He would kind of sit in the middle of uh, a circle and he was making furniture from fabric remnants uh, from, uh, you know, uh, clothing production. And so he was weaving, he was arm knitting this uh, material into furniture. Um, but the minute I saw that, I was like, that is really cool that you and and then my brain started going anytime I get introduced to these concepts, I think, oh, my gosh, think of all the things you could do 
blowing up traditional knitting into this massive scale. So then it wasn't just like, I'm going to make a cowl. It was, how do you do cables? How do you do lace? How do you, um, you know, do these different techniques and different, you know, stitch patterns on your arms and make it in this huge thing without having to deal with these massive needles. And so those concepts all got layered into that first book. So you'll find a cable blanket and the lace pillow and, um, you know, a moss stitch, you know, cushion and you know all sorts of things in that book. and so again you were sort of I mean I'm not I'm not I don't know if you were inventing them I mean but really like you were there wasn't like a YouTube video for you to watch to say how do I make cables on my arms like you were basically inventing how to do that yeah yeah I mean and like I said I didn't come up with arm knitting but I right. didn't ever learn from anything right right I that's just, what I'm saying I yeah. just kind of like said okay I know how to basically, knit I know how, how to do knit. this right. exactly and so even just purling I was like well how could how I teach I someone purl? to purl how would I bring that stitch right. forward and given what I know about knitting? And so I came up, you know, with this technique. Now, other people have purled now as well. But of course. It's just purling. But, yes. But, you know, so, but all those instructions were things that I just explored and kind of did right. as I wrote the book and wrote the pattern. Right. The book and and did you ever have the feeling, um, like, I know with my second book, I was like sitting on the idea for it. And I was like, this is such a good idea. My second book is about how to design your own stuffed animals. And there was no book in the market that was like it. And I had the idea and I'd had it for a while and sort of was getting ready to pitch it and et cetera. And was like, uh, sort of holding my breath, like someone else out there is going to beat me to it. Yeah, yeah. Because it's just such a good idea. And I just know, like, I don't know. Did you ever have that feeling? I did. I did. And actually, when I first talked to my publisher, so the there were three people interested, three publishers interested You had an in the agent. Book. I did. So, so who was your agent? So it's um, Stephanie Von Borstel with okay. uh, Full Circle Literary. Okay. And I had gotten to her through, you know, some other creative friends. Um, but basically, I had started writing this finger knitting book proposal. Somebody had come to me, a publisher had come to me and asked me about a finger knitting book. And I said, that's so funny. I have this proposal. But that kind of lit this fire. Like, I want to get this out there. And so then when I submitted it to Stephanie, I said, I also had this idea of incorporating arm knitting. She took that concept out to, you know, eight or nine publishers and three publishers were interested in the book. Um, but they were all very different concepts. So one was, I just want a finger knitting book for kids. And one was, um, you know, uh, 50 or 60 finger knitting projects. Oh, I guess a lot of projects. And then one was this kind of lifestyle concept with finger knitting and arm knitting. Uh, and I just thought, you know, and with where I could control the photography and the art direction and kind of how the whole book would look. And so I knew that that was the one I wanted. And to I think with. people don't necessarily realize sometimes how this thing works, but when you, you have a book idea and a book proposal and you send it out to publishers, often when the publisher comes back to you and says, yes, we're interested, what they do is they say, here's what we want. In other exactly. words, we're interested in you as an author. We're interested in the idea in general, but we have our own concept so we, the idea in general of finger and arm knitting, yes, but we want a book for kids yeah. or yes, but we want the finger knitting Bible. So we want a million exactly. of it or whatever it is. And so, you know, you have to then say, well, I don't really want that or whatever. Um, and 
kind of go with the one or not that is actually meeting your vision. Yeah. And it was really, it was tempting for various reasons to go with those other two offers. Um, uh, you know, one was with uh, Melanie Fallick and STC. And I just thought, oh my gosh, to work with her would be so incredible. So that one, that was the kid's book. And that was very tempting. And then the other one was with um, Workmen and they have an amazing distribution. And that would have been a very successful book. And uh, I really love the person. Um, that it's was, almost like you could have written the book three times. Oh, yeah, I feel like I could have because it was very, three very, very different, different books. books. But I also knew that I didn't want to be a finger knitter or arm knitter for the rest of my life. Like I love to explore all crafts and people for so long have been like, you need to specialize, you need to focus. And I don't want to focus. I love to embroider. I love to sew. I love to crochet. I love to knit traditionally. I love to finger knit. And I I just, to me, it's more about um, like you said, kind of finding materials that really resonate with my aesthetic and um, transforming them into something beautiful through various crafts. And the photography is really important to you. Mm-hmm. So we should also mention here that you're a great photographer. Thank you. And you take beautiful pictures and people should go over to the Flax and Twine website and just see your photography and look at like, you know, you have various patterns and products that you sell and look at your product photography and just kind of get a sense because they're very bright, very white, very neutral, and you have a certain look. And I think, you know, the other thing a lot of times people don't necessarily realize is that some publishers don't necessarily allow you to have as much control and other ones do. And so part of the negotiation when you're looking at writing a book is, well, how much of this am I really going to have a hand in? And some authors, frankly, don't want a hand in it, and some do. Right, right. And that was super important to me because photography, and this is, you know, like I said, it was something I loved when I was little, and I just get this real response to photography. When it when it hits me right, I'm in love. You know, I just think it's uh, the proportions and the color and the texture is just like, I love it. And that's what I want to feel, especially when I'm putting out my own work. I want to feel that resonance that makes me say, like, that's gorgeous. And so um, I really did not want to have someone that in someone else's hands. And so it, it has been amazing working with Pottercraft. They have been great. They really listened to my vision and my, um, you know, where in, like, the direction I want to go. So who did the photography for the first book? For so the first... The first book was a combination of people, and I don't recommend that just because it. Yeah. I, I realized later you you deal with different photographers. When you write your first book, you learn. Yeah, a lot. you learn a lot. Let's <laughs> just say that too. It's like it's so a wonderful true. experience in that you learn a lot for better and for worse, and so then for you know subsequent yeah. books and other projects, you're a great advocate for yourself because you're like, here's what I need to have. Yeah, yeah, and it was really interesting because the first photographer. So one of the photographers was out of New York. Her name is Lucy Schaefer. I went to college with her. She she is amazingly talented. She does a ton of commercial photography. So she does a lot of cookbooks. She does a lot. So working with her, I mean, it was, she was a machine. It, she was amazing. Very professional. You know, I got two shots of each thing and that was kind of, you know, that was it. She, we, she would frame it up. I would approve it. I got the two shots. Whereas um, I worked with this other photographer, Jessica Peterson, who is more of a lifestyle photographer. And, you know, it was much more, uh, you know, kind of 
go with the flow and I got just a ton more photos, more to choose from, but they were more um, flowy is the best way I can describe it. It was kind of less structured. Um, but those were also more of the model shots. So that kind of made sense. So I did most of the model shots in one location and then a lot of the homeware stuff somewhere else. But I, you know, if I did it again, well, when I did it again, <laughs> I did it all in one place, all at one time, all with one photographer. Mm -hmm. And I worked with, uh, Brittany Jepson of House That Lars Built on, um, on kind of when I did, did the shoot in Utah and she was just amazing. Um, and really, that was for like photo styling for yeah for photo styling so she really helped me you know I would just send her all these images of what I wanted and she got the stuff pulled it together really made it you know look how I wanted it to look yeah and that was really exciting and then I worked with Pam Morris as a stylist in New York and the same thing like New York there are just so many resources and they can pull from all these you know prop houses and just get this really cool cool stuff and so that was uh, great in New York. And I feel like they blended well enough that I don't think anyone looking through that first book would be like, those it's are choppy. Yeah, yeah, those are different. Yeah. I mean, they are different, but it all still has the same look because it yeah. all was directed kind of by my vision mm -hmm. and, and that sort of thing. And then the second book, um, Weaving Within Reach, is was all shot by um, Rebecca Stumpf. And one of the things about uh, writing Weaving Within Reach is so... We didn't really get this in, in my story, but we moved to Baltimore after living in Boulder for many years. And we lived there for three years and then um, came back to Colorado about three years ago. So when I first started working on this book, we had just returned to Colorado and there was something special about being back. And I really wanted the whole book to kind of be grounded in Colorado and in coming home. And so what I did was I got a Colorado stylist and a Colorado photographer and a Colorado assistant. And I, I went on a hunt all over Colorado for like cool locations. So there are these little mountain towns and cafes that are, were just like gems, you know? Um, and it's, more difficult in Colorado because you don't have the same resources in terms of like what you might find in New York. And I realize now probably how hard it was for Brittany to like collect everything too. Um, but so I was more involved in like what we were getting and how it was going to be incorporated into the shoot uh, in, on this book. And, uh, you know, I, I always look at it with a critical eye. So I look at it and think, oh, I wish we had done this. I wish we had done that. But I'm really happy with the images and how they came out and kind of the feel of it. And uh, and I want to talk a little bit about publicizing a book, marketing mm -hmm. a book, because yeah. I think that that's something that takes a lot of authors, especially new authors, by surprise. Yeah. Um, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, especially today when, um, you know, frankly, publishing houses may not have as many resources to put toward marketing, they do expect that authors are going to come to the table with mm -hmm. their own resources for mm -hmm. marketing and yes. publicity. And a lot of times that's actually a factor in how they choose the author um, is the yes. size of the author's platform for and the sure. ability for the author to bring that marketing, you know, muscle to mm -hmm. the table. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, but I do think you've done a really good job. Obviously, the um, publishing house agreed with you because I know that they um, said to you that the book, that your first book did really well and that they really wanted you to sort of be 
you know, one of their sort of craft authors or, you know, come back and do another one yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so you must have done things right. And I know, like, for example, you, um, you created poofs and for, for a whole bunch of bloggers um, and actually sent them to them uh, and, you know, kind of put together a blog tour. But that's a pretty creative blog tour to put together and a lot of work on for you um, having to make uh, yeah. like 12 poofs or whatever it was and send them out um, to a really diverse set of bloggers. And I know with this, um, with Weaving Within Reach, your new book, you're, I mean, it's a little bit of a meta conversation because obviously this podcast is actually part of that effort. Yeah. Um, so, but, yeah. but I just wanted to hear a little bit about how you think about marketing a book and some of the creative ideas and ways that you've, um, strategized to make that happen. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. It is completely on your shoulders when you publish a book. And I don't know if it would be different in other publishing houses, but it pretty much is on my shoulders, at least and has been for these two books. Um, and it's funny how things have changed from my first book to my second book. Um, you know, I've really seen the value of kind of the Instagram platform, not only for people to see the book and get excited about the book, but honestly to make me excited about the book because I love seeing people post, you know, opening their packages on their um, stories, you know, they open the package and pull the book out or they're flipping through the book or they're starting to make their first project. And I think this, the whole, and you know, my my following has grown, so there's more attention and excitement around that. And then when other people are sharing, uh, you know, so I've kind of like on this book, I've had a couple prong. Like, I still believe in blogs, <laughs> um, even though you know, I it's, too. it's a little bit of a dying breed, but I feel like there's real value in it. It's like really good, strong content. And, um, so I have, the, I, I've taken a multi-pronged approach to this. So I have this blog tour that's happening and, you know, it's kind of a traditional thing with 12 stops and, um, you know, you can go to my blog to check out all the people that are uh, featuring and sharing the book. But I, on this one, I really wanted it to be a mix of, okay, they're going to share a project. They're going to, um, I made a, a handful of bowls for people, rope bowls for people similar to the, to making the poofs where, um, you know, they can style the bowl in their style. But um, you're not expecting them to make the projects. Well, but a lot of them do anyway. Yeah. No, yeah. they do anyway. But I do think it's kind of unique that way. Yeah. And that you're making them and sending it to them so that they can be kind of a stylist and a photographer. They mm -hmm. could even be a food blogger. They could be a home decor, a, like home renovation kind of blogger. Mm -hmm. They could be a lot of different things and still be a really good participant in this blog tour without having to be somebody who necessarily spends six hours making yes. something. Yes, and that you're right. It was very intentional, especially with my first book and around sending the poofs out um, to get a very broad audience because I knew arm knitting was a, a, a craft that anyone could dive into, you know, it wasn't just knitters. In fact, some, there's a population of knitters that really poo poos arm knitting. No, there is. And yeah. that's actually an interesting tangent. <laughs> Let's just go there for one second because there are, I mean, I have seen, I've been on Ravelry yeah. and 
fun jumped into that rabbit hole of people who are yeah. like, ugh, like this yeah. is awful. This is bringing it down, bringing us down, you know? Yeah, yeah. So how do you, what, like, what, what is your response there? Well, here's my thing is, you know, there it is, it is a tricky thing, but in my mind, when you are arm knitting, you are knitting. You are pulling the yarn through those stitches in the same way you do when it's on a needle. And if you are a careful maker, if you use the appropriate yarn weight for your arms, which is, if you think about it, is a very big needle. And so if you use the appropriate yarn weight for your arms, you are going to make a gorgeous fabric. Um, it's just blown up really big, which I think is incredibly cool. Um, and so... Um, to have that ability to kind of knit in that large scale, I think it's incredible. And so I don't really understand um, how, how or or the the negative attitude towards it. You know, I understand people feel like, it, oh, you know, it's a waste of yarn or it's ugly or it looks like a net or it's atrocious. You know, all these things. I have heard it all. And um, <laughs> yeah. I've heard it all, um, but I really think, well, no, it actually is beautiful and you can make these gorgeous pieces. You just have to be in the same way, you know, you can be a traditional knitter and use the wrong yarn and the wrong needle size and make something that doesn't look great, you know? So I think you just have to be, you know, aware of those things okay. and incorporate them. Yeah. So Fair I point. don't know. Okay. All right. So back to this. So, all right. So you, you have the, the blog tour going on. And you had the blog tour for the last one where you sent out the poofs. Um, Instagram, how are you using Instagram for this um, for this particular blog tour since now Instagram is really the premier maybe spot for this? Yeah, yeah. So so yeah, like I was saying, I have I have this in-person tour. So I'm basically going around the country and teaching various places. Then I have the blog tour. So we've got the blog and that's a varied group of people. And then there's Instagram and that has been the most exciting. Um, and basically I've lined up a bunch of influencers and people I like. And honestly, there are a lot of people I thought, oh, I'll get them on the blog tour. And turns out they don't have a blog anymore. There are a lot of people wow. who just do not have blogs anymore or aren't posting on them frequently and so a lot of those people were kind enough to share it on Instagram. So we conducted giveaways. I recently had a giveaway of a loom uh, with Marianne Moody because there's a you know a whole chapter on frame loom weaving and um, you and know, you sell her looms and I sell her looms right. So that was a really um, good partnership and, and that. And she's got a tremendous following. Yeah. And she didn't so feel like it was at all like a competitive thing because she has a book about weaving. She does. She does. And I think if you, um, I think this book is very different than It most is super different weaving. from her book. Yeah. Yeah. So I think she saw it as a real um, opportunity, you know, not only to promote her looms, but also to introduce her weavers to a different kind of weaving and a different um, aspect. Because I think this book really fills a gap that is out there in weaving. Right now, there's just a ton of tapestry weaving, which is gorgeous. And I love, I love wall hangings. But um, let's talk about what's in yeah. this book and what does make it different. Okay. So this is Weaving Within Reach, which um, is actually, it does have some commonalities with the first book, mm -hmm. which is interesting. It kind of has a tie through mm -hmm. in that it is, you know, very accessible to people who, you know, sort of maybe aren't, um, you know, don't have a giant loom in their house, for example. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and as you said, 
Wall hanging weavings are everywhere right now mm -hmm. and macrame everywhere right mm -hmm. now. But this brings a whole lot of different ideation, which is your strength, a whole lot of different projects um, into, into play. So tell us what's in here. Yeah. So my goal was really to fill in that gap between, you know, you have harness looms and, you know, um, rigid heddle looms where people are making kind of finer fabric and beautiful projects, but that's intimidating. That whole world, it's hard to just jump into that. But what I wanted people to see is like, look, you can make these amazing fabrics and make you know, smaller projects, beautiful projects, totes, clutches, little zipper pouches, making this woven fabric um, with a loom, with a frame loom. So very simple tool. Uh, but then I, I wanted to go even further, you know, towards the simple end, which is like, and you don't even need a frame loom. You can make beautiful things with, um, with made looms. So you can use an embroidery hoop. You can use kind of rope as the structure for a loom. You could use a cardboard box. You can, so like the, there's a chapter just on made looms or invented looms. And then, you know, even simpler than that, you can just weave with materials. And that kind of gets to that whole arm knitting idea with your yarn in two hands or rope in your two hands. And um, so the very first chapter is literally like take yarn out of your cupboard and make this uh, pillow or, um, you know, make, you know, these earrings or whatever it is, all you need is twine, embroidery, thread, and a needle, and you're weaving. Um, so I really wanted this book to, to, uh, I don't know, get people excited about dipping their toe into weaving and incorporating it into their making life, uh, in a simple way, in a way that maybe, you know, maybe you start with something in this in the chapter where you don't need any tools at all, and then you move into well, maybe I'll use my embroidery hoop and make a frame, make a loom out of this, and then you move into well, getting a frame loom would be pretty fun. And uh, all these projects are usable things you wear, things you have in your home, things um, that are functional. And I thought that was really important. Uh, there's a you know a wall hanging in there, but that that's about it. I try to use interesting materials. So, um, you know, natural things like grasses or leather or rope or um, uh, twine um, and yarn. Um, so these vary, varying things so that that's interesting. And then I really try and introduce different techniques and kinds of weaving. So there's basket weaving. There's uh, There are two or three different kinds of basket weaving. There are different techniques where you learn different fabrics, how to create different fabrics. So like how to do a twill pattern or how to do a herringbone pattern. Um, there are projects where you learn, um, you know, different ways to do decorative stitching in your weaving. So on a frame loom, like a, the trellis hem stitch is incorporated into one clutch and, um, um, doing some simple linings and zippers and, and things like that to kind of make these pieces more functional. And all of it, although some of it would be easier with a sewing machine, you can all do it all the entire book without a sewing machine at all. I did, I did everything by hand. Um, I, I, again, I liked, <laughs> I like to make things with my hand. So hand sewing is one of my favorite things, but, um, it, it really was, is intended to kind of fill that gap and introduce people to, 
Oh, and there's gradient weaving too, which I think is really fun. So that's where you, you know, you start with four strands of a certain color and you add a, another color and then more strands of the second color. And so that there's a really cool tote that does that in this kind of ombre fashion. So there's just a lot to be learned in here and little touches of, of a lot of different things. And again, we're using neutral colors and very sort of sophisticated, modern, um, you know, sort of designed so that it is not a kid's book. Like it is definitely things that are appealing for an adult. You know, a kid could do them mm -hmm. for sure, mm -hmm. but it is, you know, it, it's just things that an adult would want and would would really love in a home. Yeah, and without committing to 40 hours at a loom. You yeah. know, these are things you could make in a cup, two hours, three hours, you know, but then it goes up. So there are projects in the frame loom section that are more of a commitment where you're really making, taking the time to make a beautiful fabric, yeah. like a windowpane fabric and things like that. Yeah. So um, it, for me, it was really, really fun to make this book. And how did you, I mean, you're, I'm imagining though that you didn't come into this knowing how to do all of these things. Like I know from writing my second book, especially that you know, even when I signed that contract, I was like, I have a bunch of stuff I got to go learn. You know what I'm saying? Like, I was like, oh, I was like, all right, it's the, I'm all cool committing to doing this. Mm -hmm. But like, I don't actually know all of these things that yeah. I'm saying I'm going to be teaching here. You know what I'm saying? But like, I know I can learn how to do them, but like, I don't actually know them all yet. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So was there, were there like trips to the library involved? Like how, what was the research? There, like? were, de there were definitely trips to the library and uh, weaving stores and stuff like that and books, other resources. It, it really, um, you're right. You know, I had done weaving. I've done I've dabbled in many, many crafts. So I had done weaving before. I had done frame weaving, weaving, frame loom weaving before. But I am by no stretch a master weaver. And so this was really good because I feel like here I am going to approach this craft from somebody who doesn't have a ton of experience and like what would be the fun things to dive into? How would I teach them? What would be the best way to teach? And I mean, I have a lot of experience teaching different crafts and teaching beginners and walking people through things in a step-by-step -step way. Um, and so, and I also have never been afraid of like, well, how would I do this? Well, what would I do and how would I approach it? And and so I would see things on the internet. For example, there's a, a bolster that's woven in a cane pattern that honestly I saw it and I thought that would be so cool um, on a bolster, like a softer bolster. It basically was a hollow they call them, um, oh gosh, I'm like blanking. It's a Korean tradition and, and it basically is a hollow pillow made with um, hard cane that um, is woven in that traditional cane pattern you'd find on, on like a cane chair. Um, and they, I call them like huggable wife or, or something like that. But basically in the hot temperature, it's something for them to hug so that there's still air flowing through. So um, anyway, it's a neat tradition, but I looked at that and I thought, well, how do I do that? And I tried to find something online and I, I didn't. So then I'm like, I, I beat my head against the wall just being like, well, what if I did this? Well, what if I did this? Well, what if it, could it be wrapped this way? Could it be done this way? And so 
um, I basically came up with kind of with my own process of how to recreate this pillow, but in a very different, different material and in a different format. And so a lot of the book is done that way. Um, and, you know, I picked up little bits here and there and um, skills here and there. And I always try. And if I find something I'm inspired by, I always try and transform it and make it into something my own. And and a lot of times I really try and just kind of come up with how to do something on my own. So it's it's like my own creation. Um, so mm -hmm. that's kind of where a lot of this came from. Yeah. And um, I do want to touch before we get to your recommendations on um, your experience at Creative Bug, um, because you have a bunch of classes mm -hmm. on Creative Bug. And I know that that's something that a lot of people are curious about and are um, interested in doing. And so can you just talk a little bit about what that experience was like for you, what you learned from doing that? And um, yeah, just sort of what that added to your sort of toolbox. I love Creative Bug. I love working with them. They're really creative over there and they've been super supportive of me and my work. And um, I, the best thing about that was learning, um, learning how to kind of step out your projects and walk through it on camera. It is a different skill to be able to be in front of the camera and explain how to do something. And I loved seeing how that all came together. And, um, and really you have to kind of break down your projects into these really bite-sized pieces that you can show and then move in the next one and show the next step and move in the next one and show the next step. And, um, you know, it made me realize I really like being on camera and I like, and people love videos. People love learning from videos. So I just think it's a craft really is absolutely like prime for showing on video because I mean, how many times have you read something and sort of been like, huh? And then you yeah. watch like a 20 second video and you're, you're like, like, oh, yeah, it's hard to explain front, back, yeah. forward, oh backwards. Gosh. Just last night. So my middle daughter is learning how to crochet and we were reading instructions and she totally, she, she's just learning to make the slip knot to start. Right. right. And she's like, oh, I can't, I, you know, getting all frustrated. And then we watched on like Annie's, we watched like the... 20 second how to make a slip knot video right. and she was like oh done right like, yeah totally done and I especially think this upcoming generation I mean that is yeah. how they learn so I've been doing a lot more video and my own video and so there are actually going to be um three video class companions with this book so we're going to make three projects in the first chapter together three projects in the second and, and who is making them those I am making so, so you're making them and then are they free? Or? Well, so they will know they will be an additional fee. They'll come with the book. There'll be an additional fee. I, I haven't really decided on the pricing yet, but um, they and will. then you can sell them yourself. Yep. I say co-branded, but, but it has to come out with the book. So it has to be a part of the book. In other words, if you want to get the videos, um, you basically the price of the videos comes with the book. And if you've already purchased the book, then we can, um, you know, deduct that the book portion off that I price. See. So it's like a proof of purchase kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, proof of purchase. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. That's an interesting <laughs> idea. Yeah. yeah. So, cause I, people ask me all the time for videos of the first book. And I just think that that's some people really like to learn that way. Yeah. And, and it is an, it's a huge expense to videotape everything and do it in a way for me. That's, you know, at a high, high You need level. to hire a crew. I mean, just like you needed to yeah. hire a photo stylist and a photographer, like exactly. we talked about to make the book. 
yep. you know, same deal. And I've seen it more and more with independent pattern designers who create video classes to accompany a pattern, um, you know, like a jeans pattern, and then there's a class how to make the jeans. And right. so you can buy the pattern for $18, or you can buy the class as well for an additional 45 or 55 whatever, yeah. and actually really learn step-by-step with the instructor you know, a professional video class. And I think that's brilliant. You know? Yeah. And I really wanted people to feel comfortable. I feel like that will help more people say like, I can do this because there are a lot of people that look at this and say like, I don't know how to weave. I don't know if this is yeah. for me. And I want to say to them, it is for you. That's exactly who I designed it for. And like, come with me. I'll show you exactly right. how to do these things. Yeah, totally. And, um, and so it's to help that kind of in between person that doesn't necessarily have the confidence to be like, I can learn from a book. Right. Okay, cool. Um, that's awesome. And I want to make sure we get to your recommendations. Yeah. So we're going to get there now. Um, and although we could talk all day because we've got I know. so many more things to talk about. But okay. All right. So you wanted to recommend, and I'm going to pronounce this brand name wrong. Is it Likey? Yeah. No, that's right. Oh, yeah. First, all right. Driftwood needles and hooks. So um, you said your others got taken away at the airport in Colombia. Yes. Uh, that was hard. They made me take my knitting off my needles and give them my needles. It was oh very sad. Gosh. But when I came back, I was like, I'm going to see this as an opportunity. And I, you know, I love beautiful things. and I love beautiful tools. And they are just gorgeous um, birch, polished birch wood. Um, and, you know, they have this really interesting color variation. And they're just gorgeous. And actually, I say likey. And so, but... It may be pronounced differently. So okay. you and I both might have okay, it wrong. Okay, that's fine. So Yeah, but there's something yeah. nice about using a beautiful tool. Yeah. So, and the, yeah, all my crochet hooks and like four of my needles were gone. So I, I got full sets of those. That was a big birthday present. But nice. uh, yeah. Oh my gosh. Really, they're hard. so lovely to work with and, and beautiful to take photos. So if you follow me on Instagram, you'll start to see them everywhere. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, all right. You have a cork cycle traveling mug. Yes. What is that? It's just a travel mug that I love. And I thought of it because my first one I bought at Squam and, uh, and I carry it with me everywhere. And I, you know, I'm just busy with the kids and running around and I love coffee and it keeps it hot for literally hours. It's so what incredible. does it look like? It's just like a regular travel, insulated travel mug, but there's something about it. First, it has a very sleek look to it. And it's got a uh, plastic lid that with a sliding top. And you know how you can you can get a lot of those travel mugs and something about it just isn't quite right. Yeah. It doesn't fit in your cup holder quite right. Or it, it, I don't know, the lip's annoying or it leaks or, it, you know, and this one is just perfect for me. So got it. Okay. I've been loving it. All right. Um, I love hot coffee. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. Um, All right. You have a bunch of NPR podcasts to recommend, and I love podcasts too. Um, So there's a whole bunch on this list. The Indicator, um, Hidden Brain, Planet Money. Um, I've never heard of this one though, 1A. What is that one? That one is really neat. I like that one. So that's kind of this whole idea around freedom of speech. And um, so they talk about a lot of current issues and it comes out every day. Oh, it's daily. Yeah, yeah. So they'll have... Um, they have a, a news roundup once a week, so and that covers national news and international news, and they usually have three or four experts 
that really cover a broad range of opinions. So, you know, you'll get somebody from the Federalist, you'll get somebody from, uh, you know, the Washington Post, you'll get somebody. So I love hearing uh, different opinions with, you know, pe- experts, basically, and what they think, you know, you'll get people from The Economist and, you know, also all over. And so I love that. And then they'll speak about they have shorter episodes during the week where they're half an hour about very specific issues. And again, they have, th- you know, three, four five different voices um, commenting on the topic. And then they are involving also uh, listener comments and questions and voicemails and emails and it's just really kind of gives you I feel like a better sense of different perspectives yeah. on, a, on an issue okay good yeah. all right that's good and then um Sophia Coppola's rose bubbly in cans <laughs> yeah <laughs> this this is really funny because I did this a uh, post for them and uh or an interview for them and they sent me this wine in cans and I'm not a big wine drinker I'm actually a beer drinker but I thought, oh, well, I'll try this. And what's great, and basically I love bubbles. So I am a mad consumer of uh, soda water. That's why I like beer. And this bubbly, I was like, oh, I'll try this. And uh, what's great is you can open it up and have one glass of wine and you don't ruin a whole bottle of bubbly. Um, and so I just have that one glass of wine at the end of the day. It's much lighter than beer. And it's I, it's, I find it very enjoyable. We recently got... So- sangria in cans okay oh. honestly i know that sounds really bad it's actually really nice right it's crazy it's weird it's, but it's it's good and it's just nice to be able to not feel like you're blowing like you have to drink a whole bottle i don't want a whole bottle of wine you know i just yeah. want one glass and it's and so to have the bubbles feels like such a treat for me and uh i've I really like been it. enjoying it that was the best case they ever sent because now i'm like i need my I need my Sophia yeah. Coppola wine. <laughs> I've been hunting around in Denver trying to track it down. That's so, funny. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that's a good recommendation. So, Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to yeah. be on the Walsh and Apps podcast and for coming to visit me here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's been so much fun. It and I love really meeting good. you. Yeah. I'm excited great. about this. And thanks for bringing me a copy of your beautiful new book. Yeah, so. you're welcome. And you've been listening to the Walsh and Apps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. This episode of the Walshy Naps podcast was sponsored by Search Press North America, independent publishers of fine art and craft books for over 40 years. If you haven't met Debbie Shore and her wonderful half-yard books, now's a great time to check them out. Just published and topping the United Kingdom's bestseller list, are the first two concept books, Build a Bag from Debbie Shore. Using two supplied durable plastic templates, sewists of all abilities can create beautiful bags for all occasions. Find out more at searchpressusa.com. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you.